Yeah, well, good evening from me, guys. Um, great to see you here as well on this warm summer evening. I'll try and keep you all in perspective over here and over here. Thanks for choosing that. It was really, really a blessing to the fellowship here, the way you've chosen your seats tonight. Um, before we get started, just a couple more. I don't know if announcement is the right word, but I um, just wanted to let all you guys know, because you're part of the Calvary Chapel Church family as well, that our kids' summer camp this morning, Kids Solar, came to an end, and they survived a week above Emmendingen with very little water and 37-degree heat. So awesome that God blessed that camp, and they had a really good closing service this morning. And the other thing is, depending on how close you're sitting, depending on how much you, Christian fellowship you want to have with the front row here, you might notice that the stage is looking pretty, pretty smart. So I just want to give a big thank you to Ivan and the team who did that yesterday. So thanks, Ivan. That's looking good. Okay, well, um, tonight, um, it's, as Beck said, it's the, the second last Sunday of Church at Five before uh, we have our summer break. We had a series here going through the book of Jonah, and then we had our, our Calvary Chapel Summer Fest. Uh, last week, we had a, a prayer night. So there's just two more messages tonight and next Sunday before uh, the three-week the three three break. Put it that way. No? Now, this evening, what I want to talk to you, I was thinking about it during the week, and what I want to talk to you about tonight is Christian hedonism. Christian hedonism. And maybe some of you have heard that term. And put your hand up if you've heard that term. Giannis, cool man, front row. That's why you're in the front row. You've heard of it. Yeah, Christian hedonism. Firstly, I want to give you a definition of hedonism. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines hedonism like this. It's the doctrine or idea or teaching that pleasure or happiness is the sole or chief good or goal in life. That pleasure or happiness is the sole or chief good in life. And that comes from the, the Greek word hedone, meaning pleasure. That is to say, a hedonist is someone whose main goal in living their life is to get as much pleasure out of life as possible. They see that as the highest goal of life. There'd be, there being no higher goal. But now I want to give you a definition of what Christian hedonism therefore is, because that might sound like it's a kind of clash between worlds here. That, that how can that be Christian to merely live for our own pleasure? But this is the definition that I have here of Christian hedonism. It's not my definition. I'll share with you just in a moment where it comes from. Christian hedonism is the conviction that God's ultimate goal in the world, namely his glory, and our deepest desire, namely to be happy, are one and the same. Because, and you may have heard of this part, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Not only is God the supreme source of satisfaction for the human soul, but God himself is glorified by our being satisfied in him. And therefore, our pursuit of joy in him is essential. So Christian hedonism claims that the Christian life, our lives, our daily lives as Christians should be about pursuing maximum joy, maximum pleasure in God. Joy both in the quality and quantity. 
Fullness of joy and joy forevermore are found only in God himself. And that's what I want to talk to you guys about tonight. That definition, um, some of you may recognize it, comes from Desiring God, from John Piper. Um, many of you may have heard of him. And he's probably the, well, the most well-known Christian hedonist alive today in of our times but this it's important to so it's important to say this isn't from him it's not like he came up with this doctrine or he came up with this idea and then pressed it onto uh, the scriptures uh, this is something we find all throughout uh, church history and indeed all throughout the bible and i just want to give you an oft uh, an oft quoted example from saint augustine you can see I've got a little blue marker in here because it's just always in here. Because it's just you just got to come back to this over and over again. Page one of his confessions. So his autobiography, basically his prayer to God, explaining his life and thanking God for his grace. Within the very first paragraph, he's, so he's speaking to God. And he says, nevertheless, to praise you, God, that's the desire of man. That's the desire of human beings. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. I'm sure many of you will have known that quote. That's Christian hedonism. We're created for God. We'll never come to peace. We'll never come to true satisfaction until we rest in God himself. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. And I would definitely say, yes, I am a Christian hedonist. I desire to be more and more so to pursue maximum, to make my life about pursuing maximum joy in God and knowing that as I do so, I'll be given, giving maximum glory to God. I want to grow in my understanding of what this means for my actual daily life as a Christian. And so in a sense, this is what I want to impress upon you guys this evening, that the necessity, the, the essential requirement of loving God, of loving Christ, of, of seeking our joy and satisfaction in Christ, in God himself. That's what I want to talk about tonight. And it's really, in one sense, just a, a reminder. I was searching around uh, this last week, thinking about what to teach tonight. It's, sometimes it's a bit hard to have a standalone message. You're like, oh, I've just got one thing for one evening. What am I going to do? You can't just say... Thanks, Brandon. Jonah, I'll take chapter 4, which didn't happen. Brandon did chapter 4. So I was thinking about what to teach or what to preach this evening over the last weeks, and I thought about saying, um, saying something maybe about time, about how God gives us the year and uh, he gives us time. But as it goes, last week or just this week ending today for me was a very busy week, one, one in which things just pile up and I feel like I had no rest. And I didn't have that sense of conviction that yes, indeed, this is what the Lord would have me speak about this evening. And so it was three things that got me to this topic of Christian hedonism, the necessity of love for God this evening. Last Sunday, a friend asked me, he asked me a question after the service. He says, he asked, me, he asked the question from the point of view of the Holy Spirit, from the point of view of God, asking, do we really want, do we really desire God's Holy Spirit? Do we really want, do we really desire God's Holy Spirit for who he is, a person of the Trinity? Or is he merely a faceless entity, as it were? And by that I understand 
that to mean is he merely a means to an end, a mere instrument or tool to help us get what we want or get where we want to go, rather than a person deserving of our affections, our love, and our satisfaction. That was the first thing that got me thinking during the week. And secondly, I was reading uh, my favorite book this week, and, and obviously you've got to say, other than the Bible. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't want to put another book above the Bible in a sermon that's being recorded and going online, would you? So I was reading my favorite book this week, Other Than the Bible, and um, actually there's a radio show in the United Kingdom called Desert Island Discs. I'm not sure if the British people tonight have heard of that show. Basically, they have people on the show, and they get to play a number of records, pieces of music that have influenced their life or that they really enjoy and explain to the, the listenership why. And then they have to ask questions, and the questions are kind of designed around the idea of if you went to a desert island, what? And uh, everyone who goes to this desert island, not, not really, obviously, but in the concept of the show, everyone gets the Bible automatically. So that's cool, isn't it? You don't have to choose the Bible. You get the Bible, and you can choose one other book to take. And uh, this is the book I'd take if I ever ended up being carted off to a desert island after doing a British radio interview. And that book is uh, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And uh, I was just reading this on the, the tram into work uh, this week. And uh, there on page 65, uh, I read these words. He, sa- he says here, Would that, or if only, our sole occupation were the perpetual praise of the Lord our God with heart and voice. If you had no need for food, drink, or rest, You could praise God without ceasing. You could give yourself wholly to spiritual things. You'd be far happier than now when you're compelled to serve the needs of the body. He's not saying that the needs of the body are necessarily bad, but he's saying if we didn't have those, we'd be even more able to be engaged in the praise of the Lord God. If only these needs didn't exist so that we might enjoy the spiritual feasts of the soul, which, alas, We taste so seldom. But then he wrote this line. He says, When a person no longer seeks their comfort from any creature, when a person no longer seeks their comfort from any creature, then they first begin to enjoy God perfectly. Then they first begin to enjoy God perfectly. When? When they no longer seek comfort from any creature, but from God himself. And just the force of that truth as I read it uh, hit me. And and I longed and desired for that to be true of me, for that to be an accurate description of, of my life, of my Christian faith, that I seek my comfort in God alone, and therefore I'm truly beginning to enjoy him perfectly. Now, it's not the first time that I've read this book. Basically, you can open this book anytime, anywhere, and be like massively challenged and or massively encouraged. In fact, when I read this line, it was already underlined by me from reading it a few years uh, back. And uh, this is not the only thing in here. Just, just to point out to you that this is not a new idea that some guy called John Piper came up with. That This is a very old thing. This book is from the 14th century. So just to give you an idea, if you flip over a few pages here, you can see my copy is not in great condition. Um, just on page 73 here, Um, He writes, Let nothing be great 
pleasant or desirable to you, save God alone and whatever comes from God. He's not saying that we shouldn't be thankful for other things in life or take pleasure in other things. He says that in other parts of the book, but he's saying compared to all other things, God is so different. And our pleasure, our desire should be for him alone. Or just a few uh, pages later on page 75, he says, Blessed is that person who understands what it is to love Jesus. You must surrender all other love for his love. For Jesus desires to be loved alone. And above all things, the love of creatures is deceptive and unstable. And we know that from life experience, I should think. The love of Jesus is faithful and enduring. Whoever clings to any creature will fall with its falling. But he who holds to Jesus will stand firm forever. Love him, therefore. Keep him as your friend. For when all others desert you, he will not abandon you, nor allow you to perish at the last. Whether you wish it or not, you must in the end be parted from them all. But hold fast to Jesus, both in life and death. Trust yourself to his faithfulness, for he alone can aid you when all others fail. Or, as a last one, on page 114, he writes these words. Therefore, my soul can never find full satisfaction or perfect refreshment, save in God alone, who is the comfort of the poor and the protector of the humble. My soul can never find full satisfaction or perfect refreshment save in God alone. And on and on it goes through the rest of that book. And the third thing, I said there were three things which brought me to the topic uh, this evening. Thirdly, yesterday morning I was preparing for a wedding up around Fort Syme and I had to translate into English. And so I had my... Um, I had my wife's NIV Bible that she had when she did a year away in New Jersey back in 2003. And as I was opening it up, because my NIV Bible was just falling apart, so I needed a Bible that wasn't going to fall apart in my hand. As I opened it up, this little note fell out of the Bible that she must have written at least 13 years ago. And on this little note, it says, translated, it says, Don't you want to have a relationship with me? 24 hours a day. Just fluttered down onto my desk. I was like, whoa. Yeah, that's what I want. That is what I want, to have a relationship with God 24 hours a day. So all these little pointers, these three little signs, if you will, were saying Christian life, our life as Christians, is first and foremost... That means before all other things, before anything else that we might think about or pursue in life, our Christian life is first and foremost about a love for God. A love for God. Maybe that just, roll, maybe that just kind of rolls in one ear and rolls out the other because we're so used to hearing words like that in church. But just think about that, what that means. You actually love, you, you place affection, you consciously place affection on God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just really think about that sentence for a moment. Christian life is first and foremost about a love for God. About a love for the person of Jesus Christ. And we don't want to separate this from each of us individually. Yes, as Christians, as a church, we're called together to worship. But we did um, a moment before with our music and what we're doing now as we listen to his word. But it has to affect each one of us individually. Each one of us has to be able to make, at some point, Augustine's confession and say, 
I realize that I can only come to full rest in you. So you can't think of love for God and love for Jesus as something religious or as a religious duty or something only tangentially concerned with you. It has to do with your heart and it affects you. And that's the foundation for our Christian life. That's where it all starts. That's where it all starts. It's not merely the accepting of certain facts or certain information about historical events, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, though you must accept those to be a Christian. We do have a statement of faith, a creed. But it's not mere intellectual assent to those things which makes you a Christian. It is actually, as we'll see a bit later on in John's Gospel, receiving Christ. To as many as received him, Jesus gave them the privilege to call themselves children of God. What does that mean to receive Jesus? I believe it means to love him. To love him. To consciously place your affection on his person. On the person of God. And I was really challenged as I was thinking about these things. I was really challenged. I want you guys to know that. Do I, me, Sam, who call myself a Christian, I call myself a follower of Christ, I call myself even a pastor, perhaps, do I love God? Do I love him? Do I love Christ? Do I love Jesus Christ? Or are those just empty words that flow off my tongue? Do I really enjoy him? Do I see him as a person, not an instrument, not a means to an end? Do I, do I desire him? Do I live relationship with him 24 hours a day? And in a certain sense, I think the answer to my question, and if you ask yourselves the same questions, has to be yes and no. It's important to answer yes and no. In a sense, in this life, we're all on a journey, and we aren't perfect. So there'll never be a point where we can perfectly answer that question and say yes My love for Christ is present and it is perfect. It is undiluted. It is untainted by selfishness or by sin. That will never happen this side of the restoration of all things when Jesus Christ returns again. But the question we have to ask is, but what is our heart like basically? What is our heart like basically? Are we... Despite our failures and despite our distractions, desiring to love God, desiring to love Christ, and is the trajectory of our lives moving us towards loving Christ, loving God more and more, seeking, as Thomas Akempis wrote in this book, our enjoyment of him, our our perfect enjoyment in God alone? Or is the trajectory of our life not so much we don't have anything to do with Christ, That's not really the issue, probably, for most people in a church. But the question becomes is, is our life, is the basic trajectory of our life saying, we live a steady second place? It's just a steady second place. Yeah, we come to church. Yeah, we have Christian fellowship. Yeah, we we ascribe perhaps to the the, the statement of faith, we believe in the, the, uh, the historical events that surround the, the, the 
foundation of Christianity, Jesus' life, death, resurrection. But if we look at our hearts, is it's just steadily the case that Christ is, if, if at all, number two. He's not, he's not the source of our greatest affection, of our greatest desire, of our greatest satisfaction. And no matter where we are today, I think it's worth pointing out that, that hearing a word like this, and I'm not saying that because I'm saying it, but hearing a word like this is in fact exactly how God helps us and encourages us on this journey. We know from the scriptures that we don't live by bread alone, by physical food alone, but by every mouth that proceeds from, but by every word that receives from the mouth of God. And we're also called to encourage each other and spur each other on even more. The writer of Hebrews says, as you see the day approaching, that is the end of this age. So if you realize, like I did this week, I needed that reminder. Or as uh, the Apostle John, uh, speaking through the Holy Spirit, writes in the book of Revelation, his reminder to the church at Ephesus Encouraging them, imploring them to recover their first love, namely a love for Christ. If you need that like I needed that, then let this message speak to you today. Don't be downcast, but say thank you, God, that you gave me this reminder, that you helped me back on the right trajectory. And let's really spur each other on. Let's encourage each other in this thing. That we, we, we need to love God. We need to love Christ. I just want to give you a few echoes of this. Echoes of Christian hedonism from scripture. There are literally uh, so many uh, verses. But I just want to pick out uh, a few uh, with you. So perhaps probably the most famous one. Or one of the most famous ones would have to be Deuteronomy. The fifth book that Moses wrote. In chapter 6 and verse 5, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Now, this is important to note a commandment, a law given to the Old Testament people of God, the people of the children of Israel, before they crossed over into the promised land. God commands this. Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love. The Lord your God, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. Love the Lord your God, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. If you've ever, if you've ever thought about comparative religion, that is the modern discipline of looking at the different religions of the world and kind of comparing them, uh, from an evolutionary framework to see a, a common origin of how they might have developed in a socio-political historical context, you'd have to say that this is a pretty strange command, I think. Strange command. A take from a comparative religion point of view has to do your, normally with power and influence. That a priestly caste um, used religion or used a belief in the gods and the need to keep the gods happy in order to be an elite that dominated ancient societies. 
And if you look at ancient uh, religion in the ancient Near East, in ancient Babylon or ancient Sumeria, then you will not find commands like this. Have you just thought about how, in some sense, how strange that is? You might even think it's kind of arrogant, isn't it, for God to command me to love him. But that's indeed what God commands. The Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And if we come to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is asked a question in Matthew chapter 22. We read his answer. He's asked, what is the greatest commandment? Basically, what is the most important commandment within the Old Testament system of law that was given to Israel? And it shouldn't surprise you to hear what he says in Matthew 22 and verse 34. Uh, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, no equivocation. No, well, you've got to weigh them up. Depends on the day. No, he just says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So this is foundational to our faith. This is foundational to our relationship with God that we're called to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, with all our strength. And I want to read to you Psalm 16, which is really a psalm about Christian hedonism, about, about loving God and finding in him satisfaction and joy. Just listen to Psalm 16 as I read it through line by line. Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Keep me safe, my God. Why? For in you I take refuge. Where do I look for comfort? In you, God. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Do you hear echoes of Thomas Akempis in there? Apart from you, Lord, there's no other good thing. Ultimately, God, you're the, you are all that is good, all that is right, all that is pure. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their, their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is basically a psalm expressing the heart of Christian headers, and that is to find joy 
Pursue joy and satisfaction in God himself. To love. That means to love. When we have joy in something, it's because we, we love it. We place our affection upon it. To love God. To love Christ. Well, finally, let me read Philippians chapter 1 from the New Testament. And verse... From verse 20, listen to what the Apostle Paul here writes about Christ, about knowing God. He writes here, Philippians 1 and verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I'll be in no way ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. What is Paul's goal for his life? that God would be most glorified in him, that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So it doesn't matter whether I live or die, I want Christ to be exalted in me and in my life. For to me, to live is Christ. What is my life about, says Paul? My life is about Christ, pursuing Christ, finding joy in Christ, loving Christ. And to die is gain, What does he mean by that? For um, If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. So to die is gain. Which gain is he talking about? He's talking about the gain of departing and being with Christ. So whether he, if he lives, he pursues Christ. He desires that God will be most glorified in him. And where is he seeking his satisfaction? Where is he placing his affection? Where is he obtaining his joy? Namely, in Christ himself. So this this truth, I would argue, of Christian hedonism, loving God, placing our affection upon him, This truth that God is therefore most glorified or Christ most magnified in us when we're most satisfied in him is not peripheral. This is not a a topic at the margins of our faith. Um, Basically what we're saying is when we we show through through our affections, through the way we live our life, that Christ or that God is, is, is more worthy to us than all other things, more beautiful, more precious to us than all other things, we're actually giving glory to God. We're making God, we're making Christ look attractive, look beautiful, look appealing, look satisfying. This is not at the margins of our Christian life. This is right at the heart of what it means to be Christian, what it means to belong to Jesus, what it means to treasure and trust Jesus Christ. So basically the challenge is, do we do this? Do I do this? Is this the way that lives my, the way I live my life? Or have I, perhaps through worldly things, Jesus talks about that in the parable of the sower, that we can hear the word with joy and receive it, but then lose our way when, the, when, the, when life's pressures life's troubles or the desire for riches come in and crowd out 
our desire for Christ. That's the challenge that, I, that I've asked myself this week where I, I want to hear a word from the Lord, a reminder from him about where my true comfort, my true satisfaction, my true love needs to be. Christian hedonism says we must receive Christ not only as a rescuer, not only as a saviour, not only as a Lord, but as our, as our supreme treasure, as the place where our heart really is. Think of that verse from Matthew 13, the parable that Jesus tells, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's what Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like. Or Jesus says these words in Matthew 10, 37. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's what I was saying before. That's the trajectory which says, yep, I love God. I'm part of the church. And yeah, I believe. But Jesus is a comfortable second place. There are other things above him in life. Things like perhaps family. Jesus says, you're not worthy of me. Jesus says that to me. He says that to us. Or Paul, again from Philippians, in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I count everything, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So I said before, uh, in John 1, verses 11 and 12, there we read, to everyone who received him, Jesus gave the privilege that they might call themselves the children of God. So what does it mean to receive Christ? What does it mean to receive Christ? And my argument tonight is to say that it's not enough. Or, or that, or, Sorry, not that it's not enough, but that's not what receiving is. Receiving is not ticking off a checklist of facts that we believe about Jesus or about Christianity or about faith. Receiving Christ means desiring him, not just what he can do. Desiring him, welcoming him, embracing Christ means being satisfied with Jesus. Finding our true joy, our satisfaction, our peace in him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. In John 14, 21 through 23. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Now just think about that for a moment as we draw to a close here. It's not the other way around. Have you ever noticed that? It's not the other way around. It's not if you do what I say, then that shows that you love me. It's if you love me, then you will do what I command. That's why this is so foundational to our lives as Christians. I just want to say two things, um, or let me say just say three things quickly as I, as I close out. The first thing, just drawing on that verse, if you love me, you will obey what I command. That says that the major fight of the Christian life, and the Christian life is a fight, it's called that in the New Testament, a fight, 
The major fight of the Christian life is, is not a fight against external enemies with sword or tank or plane. But the major fight of the Christian life is the fight for our affections, the fight for our hearts, the fight for what we love. That's where the fight is. And every single day, do we love Christ more than sin or self or ego or pleasure? Or do we see in him greater pleasure, greater satisfaction, greater love? That you can bring that down to every single temptation. But we're tempted in Christian life. It's a fight for affections. And so this verse shows us that when our loves, when our affections are ordered correctly, when we love Christ more than than the supposed satisfaction that comes from living out sin, if we love Christ more, that's what leads to change. It's the ordering of our loves. It's winning the battle of our affections that leads to change. If you love me, then you'll do what I command. If we want to see change in our Christian life, we have to come back right down to the root, to the affections of our heart. Do we love Jesus Christ? And just to finish by saying why this is so necessary. Why this is so necessary. I believe it's necessary first and foremost in a sense of warning that if we don't treasure Christ, if we don't love him, if we don't love God, then we haven't really received him. We haven't really received him. That's what Jesus is saying. If you love father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. And goodness, they are, they are fearful words that I tremble at. When he says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field which a man found and covered up, and he sold everything he had, everything to get that. That's what, I, that's what the, the, the warning is about the necessity of truly loving Christ is that it's only when we treasure him, when we give away everything else in order to have him, I can count everything else as rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. Or Jesus in the high priestly prayer in John 17 verse 3, this is eternal life. What is eternal life? To know you, the only God, and Jesus Christ your son. That's what eternal life is, to know the Father and the Son. So it's necessary. I want to impress that upon you guys. It's necessary. But the second reason why it's necessary, and I find this so freeing, is that because it is an actual fact, God's greatest gift to us is himself. We said before that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. This is not an arbitrary thing. God is actually holding out to us when he says, when he commands us. Like I said, doesn't that sound a bit arrogant? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength. That guy's on an ego trip. He needs all this adulation. But that's not what it's about. It's because God himself is the ultimate good. He is ultimate joy. That in God giving us himself, he is showing his love for us to the highest degree. There is no better thing, no more beautiful thing, 
no more wonderful thing that God could give us except for himself. In saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, God is saying, I want you to be supremely satisfied. I want you to have supreme joy. And what will truly satisfy you, what will truly bring you joy, is the greatest and best and most beautiful of all there is, which is me, myself. When God offers himself, he's offering himself in a selfless manner. He's completely different to us. And that's why it's necessary to love Christ, I say to you, because by doing so, you will truly have joy. You will truly have satisfaction. You will truly have fulfillment. I want all you guys, and I want myself as well. That's what, and I was reading this word, and I was struck, let that be true of me, that I find my contentment in God alone. Because when I do that, I begin to enjoy God perfectly. I want that for myself, and I want that for all of you guys. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I want to call you guys back now or, or, or remind you to help you. There might be some of you here today who are like, oh, I needed to hear that. Just like me, maybe the pressures of this world have begun to crowd out the initial joy and love that you had for Christ. Maybe others of you have allowed a, a sort of comfortable trajectory to set in your life where Jesus is just like, yep, he's number two, he's steady at number two, but he's not number one. And maybe others of you have no affection for Christ. You, you, you desire to follow Christ. You're perhaps fearful of God and his, his justice, his punishment. But you haven't understood that to receive Christ really means to love him, to be welcomed in to his family as a beloved son or a beloved daughter. So before we go to the summer break, I want to challenge you to recover or to come for the first time to that love, to set your affection upon God, upon Christ. Not just to assent to certain facts. Not just to have religious language roll off your tongue or go in one side and come out the other, but to really love Christ. So I'm going to invite the worship team back up now. And what I'd love to do is, um, I mean, as I say, I, I, this is a reminder for me, and I want prayer too. But if you think, yeah, I would love to rekindle my affection, my love for Christ, then come up here during the last song, and there'll be time after the service, then maybe a few guys from the Church at Five team could join me up here. And I really just want to pray for God to rekindle our heart's desires for Jesus Christ, for God himself. All right, amen.